0: Welcome to the podcast, Inside Out. If this is your first time joining us, this is a story that you've arrived in the middle of. It's best to start in episode one. This is season two, my life inside a federal prison camp. Season one is the truth is the first victim. And it would be best if you started season one, episode one, and worked your way through. New episodes drop every Sunday. We're so glad you're here. This is Inside Out. I'm your host, James Catledge. Welcome aboard. This is Inside Out with James Catledge. Welcome to season two, my life inside a federal prison camp. Today we're going to talk about Vinny, my next door neighbor in 33 Low, inside the A unit. So Vinny is Mexican, but to look at Vinny, you would think he's Caucasian. And certainly I did, and certainly the Mexican uh, group thought he was Caucasian. And so the reason that matters inside a federal prison is because typically, uh, if not always, you go to the TV room with your race, and you eat in the chow hall with your race and you really don't sit with the other races. There is not a racial issue, and I want to reiterate that. In most prisons, and certainly the one I was in, there were no racial tensions or racial issues whatsoever. But there is a segregation inside federal prison, as far as I can tell. The camp, specifically, was very clear about the segregation. And you'll hear more about incidents that occur where the segregation was not respected so Vinny's next door Vinny's not in good shape he's this this legal case that got him in prison has, has taken a toll on him he arrives very out of shape probably 10 different prescriptions he's taking from the from the medicine folks up there i call them the veterinarians but it's the medical staff there at taft the veterinary team So you've got to go to pill call where you stand in line and take your pills in front of the nurse. And when you take those pills, they watch you take them so that you don't, I guess, walk them back and sell them to folks who may not have a prescription, but would like to use your pills. And so they have to watch you consume them. So Vinny's got lots of medicine and he's at every pill call. Well, Vinny has been oriented by the white guys regarding the TV room and the chow hall and the basic rules of the camp. And there is somewhat of an orientation that's inmate controlled and inmate driven and inmate enforced. And so Vinny has been uh, oriented by the white guys. But as it turns out, Vinny's Mexican. And so it doesn't matter to me one bit, but it does matter uh, to know where he's supposed to sit when he goes to eat. and And frankly, they try to, keep the housing unit organized so that your neighbors on either side are or of your race. And that was certainly the way it was running our camp. And so Vinny's next door to me. And it, I guess probably 10 days in the Mexicans figure out Vinny's Mexican. And so they have to reorient him and it's a big deal. And they want to move his housing unit and the whole thing, but he likes being next door and we're sharing the wall street journal. Uh, my mother has gotten me the subscription to the wall street journal. And so uh, that, that, Gets circulated. Uh, and the way it gets circulated is you put the names on top of the paper who get it, and then they pass it from person to person to person, and it ends up back in my hands. And then I, I put it on the steps for anyone to read once we've circulated it amongst the group that's sharing that paper. So Vinny's in the circulation on this Wall Street Journal. Vinny's in there for a white collar crime. Vinny is probably, I would say 60. He looks a little older, but that just hasn't taken care of himself. But I would say Vinny 60, he gets word about a month or so into his stay, that his mother's become very sick. And it's the way they typically inform you is the case manager or counselor will bring you into the office and explain that you've got a family member that's either sick, dying or dead. And it's, uh, it's, it's pretty heavy because one of the scariest things for an inmate is the separation from their family. And then the worst case scenario is to lose a family member while you're inside. It it really is, it's emotionally devastating. So Vinny understands that his mother who's of age to pass is sick and the family's gathered around and they would like Vinny to get a furlough. A furlough is you fill out the paperwork and the Bureau of Prisons has to approve it all the way back to Washington, DC. The prison approves it and says the paperwork. To region they send it to D.C. and then this furlough gets approved. and A furlough for a camper means they send you out the front door, and you return at the time they said. Typically, it's twenty-four hours, forty-eight hours, based on you know how far you've got to go, and it's typically for extreme circumstances like a funeral, like uh, like a burial, like your mother's on her deathbed, that kind of thing. So Vinny gets all his paperwork filled out. Everyone who's friends with Vinny knows that this is happening, and it's sensitive, and everybody's rallying around Vinny, and and we're all crossing our fingers and praying that he gets this furlough. Well, he's denied the furlough, and we're all just very heartbroken by this because Vinny's a caring, loving, sensitive guy, and we want Vinny to be with his mom if she's going to pass. Well, he can he can appeal this, and so we lean in on the counselors. To, to try to get this thing approved, and, and I don't know if this helped or not, but Vinnie, within a week of the appeal, gets approved. So, the day comes for Vinny's furlough. And the way it works is, you've gotta pay for the guard's time, and there's, there's a rate, you have gotta pay for the gasoline, if it's for driving, if it's an airfare, you've gotta pay. Bottom line, it's kind of expensive. This is gonna be about an $800 day and Vinny's gonna go for two days and he's gonna go to the funeral. He's gonna, Not the funeral, he's going to bedside. He's going to have a hospital where mom's you know, dying and, and everybody's gathered around. Family has come in from all over the place. So we're trying to time this so that Vinny can be with his mom before she passes. Well, the guard who's taking Vinny gets out of the gates with Vinny in the van. It's an Econo line van with no windows. You're kind of like in a tube back there. And some of the vans have windows, but the one Vinny's in doesn't. And Vinny, you know, this is a long way to travel on the highway where you can't see out. And, you know, you're just, you know, it's just terrible. So Vinny gets out the front gates and they get to going, and the guard looks at his paperwork and stops along the highway along the shoulder and communicates back to Vinny, what's the address you think we're headed to? If Vinny gives him the hospital uh, down in Los Angeles where he's supposed to be headed. And the guard informs Vinny that the paperwork has mom's address, her physical address, where she lives, her home, not the hospital, and that he'll have to turn around and go back. So Vinny obviously is emotional. Vinny would cry, crying as they turn the van around, this guard will not go. Won't even call it in, turns around and heads all the way back. Well then uh, he returns to the camp. It's like within an hour of him leaving, and we're 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 stunned by what he explains to us. And we're like up in arms about this. There's probably a half dozen of us that are really upset about this. And uh and we lean in and, and they push to get paperwork done. It takes another week. We get the paperwork done. And mom passes away before that paperwork gets fixed with that stupid address being right. So Vinny got his furlough, but it's now for a funeral. And so Vinny sadly packs up, gets himself organized, heads out the front of camp a week after turning around and heads to mom's funeral now. So Vinny did not get to be with his mother and his family before she passed. Didn't get to say bye, didn't get to hold her hand, didn't get to tell her all the important things that you'd like to tell your mom. And I, I share that with you for two reasons. Number one, I care about Vinnie, but I want you to know that the Bureau of Presence is an insensitive place to be. It is a machine. It's a bureaucratic machine. And the people that work inside that machine, no matter how caring they may be, and most are not, some are, but it's almost like there's nothing they can do. It's so, it lacks such common sense. It lacks such administrative leadership. It, it lacks such you know sensitivity to the human condition. It, it's disastrous. You can imagine the anger and the, the, the venom with which Vinnie feels about his government, about the Bureau of Prisons, about this administrative state. Uh, so, so Vinnie just you know spirals into this depression for about a month before we can kind of get him to snap out of it. But thank God the inmates, like your family, rally around, care about you, talk with you for hours, kind of walk you out of that scenario and uh, get you back to, to feeling positive and thinking about your potential again. But I'm going to tell you something. That was devastating for me to watch. It scared me to death to think that that kind of thing had happened to me. And it happens every day in the Bureau of Prisons. And it's my hope, it's my hope, that with the large numbers of people listening to this podcast, that we can get through to, to the administrative state, the Bureau of Prisons, the Department of Justice, and understand that you you need to, you need to have human beings with compassion. If you're gonna warehouse people, if you're gonna separate them from their families, and you're, you're gonna keep them in your custody, and you want them to return to society healthy, you gotta do a better job. You have got to do a better job all the way down to the case managers and counselors who need to be much more like social workers with a degree of sensitivity and compassion. And uh, I think you'll find men reformed, restored and and healthy, healthier if if it's handled that way. Anyway, Vinny got his furlough, but instead of saying bye to mom, it was for a funeral. This is Inside Out with James Catledge, season two my life inside a federal prison camp. I want to talk about respect now on the outside of a federal prison respect is pretty obvious you just you know treat people with respect inside a federal prison it's next level respect and I, I want you to know that that word encompasses everything uh, inside federal prison it's it's not just the way you treat people but it's it's understood that you understand that a man who's done more time than you, deserves respect. A man who's older than you, deserves respect. A man who may come from a gang and have a special seniority, deserves respect. Uh, There's all sorts of underlying need to understand layers inside federal prison that really do need to be understood. Because respect is that word is used for thousands of things and I learned this lesson in a really awkward way. Now I, I can kind of fit in in I can fit in in a rough group. I could fit in in a tight group. I could fit in an in intellectual group. I could fit in an in overly religious group. Uh, that's probably my least comfortable spot, the overly religious but I can kind of blend in. I, I've just had enough life experience with all these different types of people. And I think it has a lot to do with the way I was raised and growing up in the South and growing up in kind of a, a, a poor area, uh, living in an area where you know, you know, people didn't have much and, and, then, and then having success in life and seeing really all along that trail, the way different people live. And I'm curious enough as a person, that I really ask lots of questions and really want to understand things. So I'm on the outspoken team, and I've done a couple of trips where we've gone outspoken, and, and and I'm considered one of the team. And uh, it it's obvious that there's more opportunity than is being exploited by this group. Meaning, there's more schools. There's there, there's probably corporations that would benefit from hearing these speeches. The outspoken team could be doing more. They know it. It's a part of their meeting discussions they're, they're discussing amongst their leadership. And I'm just the new guy. They're dis- discussing amongst their leadership, all the different avenues. And so I chime in and give some of my thoughts and, 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 and most of them, and I say most, there are a few that are not, but, but most are interested in, in my input and I'm a pretty good writer. And so I have suggested that we write some letters to corporate CEOs and see if we can't get into some of the corporations in Bakersfield. And I think the employees will benefit from this. And truthfully, I'm just looking for more ways to get out of this facility. And, and the more opportunities we have, it's probably going to be for a good cause. But candidly, it's going to get me and the other guys out of here more frequently. And that's really my driving motivation here. So I'm having some conversations during the meeting, you know, raising my hand, offering, you know, my thoughts and others are doing the same. And the meeting ends and one of the fellows, this is a Mexican guy uh, who I know well, he's the guy actually that suggested I get into Outspoken. We're shooting baskets together early on. I shared with you that story where he says you should be on the Outspoken team. So he and I are having a sidebar after the, outspoken meeting ends and we have a weekly outspoken meeting where we're discussing logistics and we're interviewing new new inmates who want to build on the team and listening to their speeches and for the most part people are not getting on the team you only need so many you don't you don't need I want to say we've got 15 guys and eight go each time so it, it's uh, we don't we're not looking for a lot more guys but after this meeting some of the comments I made, this fellow wants to follow up and he's sincerely interested. He's sincerely drilling down with me on some of the questions or or some of the comments I made. And we're having a sidebar and and we're face to face and, 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 and I'm in close physical proximity and we're having a conversation and, and we know each other well enough that we're, we don't feel uncomfortable talking face to face like this. We're, we're very, you know, it's, it's a comfortable conversation. Well, next thing I know to my right, and I'm a, I'm a, an aggressive communicator. So if you and I are having a conversation, even if it's in the car, I'm making eye contact with you. I'm looking, people get nervous when I drive because I, I literally will rotate my body and use my hands and have a conversation and I'm driving. Well, this is true in a real conversation between me and this fellow where, where I'm, I'm using my hands and I'm close to him and we're having this. And I notice uh, to my right, Another inmate has kind of pulled up close. Now, I don't even break my gaze with my friend who I'm having the conversation with, but I can tell this guy's either what we call ear hustling, where he's eavesdropping. We call it ear hustling because that's going on all over camp. Everybody's getting in everybody's business, which really, that's one of the pet peeve, annoying things, frankly, that really bothered me is why I took a lot of our counseling discussions out onto the track because we were getting ear hustled that people were learning each other's business while we were doing it inside my cubicle. And so taking it outside was important. Well, this guy's pulled up tight. And, and I decide after, and, and when I'm in a conversation, I don't really even want a waiter or a waitress if we're in a restaurant to, to interrupt and ask for the order because I, I, I'm a strong communicator and I, and I, I, I don't want to be interrupted. And so I'm having this conversation with this guy he's asked me a question and I'm really trying to help him understand what I'm saying and we're having a it's pretty intense and uh, no 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 friction between he and I just just it's an intense communication and this guy's pulled up tight next to me us he's just kind of pulled up on my right this other guy's left and I decide I probably need to look at him acknowledge his presence well I look at him and I give him a look that I shouldn't have given him the look I gave him was a look I would give anybody on the outside who's interrupted a conversation. It was a look of, really? Uh, get, you know, can we finish? So I give this guy this look. And in prison, you really are, you know, you if you've done any time at all, you get good at reading people. And there, there had been no words spoken between me and this guy. But I gave him a look that made him uncomfortable. And he says to me, Right then and there, do you know who you're talking to? Just like that. And, and in my mind and stomach, I realized that the look I gave him was disrespectful. And uh, and so I just answered his question, do you know who I'm talking to? I said, of course, of course I do. You're a so-and-so. And uh, he says, you got that right. And then he's got his fist clenched and he's... He's kind of pull pushed his shoulders forward, kinda of like machismo. Like, like like if you want to fight, we can do it right now. I mean, that's literally the physical posture he's taken. Now this guy's pretty thick. He is a leader. I don't want to say a gang leader, because I don't want to give you the impression we've got lots of gangs in there, but there are there are gang leaders in there, okay? And this guy certainly is leading the guy I'm talking to, and he's, he's a leader of many, let's just say that. And the guy I'm talking to, the reason he pulled up is because this is one of his guys and he, he thought it's important that he understand what I'm talking to his guy about. And that's kind of the way it goes. And I I needed to to understand that. I really did. I mean, this is a mistake I've made. It's a serious mistake. And it, and it, and it, it could get nasty here. And I know in my mind, I've got to strategically do two things. This is, this is what's in my mind. I've got to strategically return respect, but maintain mine. And that is going to be a bit of a tightrope. And so when I answer the question, I'm just thinking, thinking, thinking. And I said, uh, just like this, why don't we take this outside? (laughs) I swear to God, I said this. And the guy is a little shocked because he thought the white guy may not say something like that. But I thought I wanted to do two things. Number one, I wanted to create some distance in case something did go down between me and the other guys. I wanted to be outside with him by myself, because I may be able to be okay by myself, but I certainly don't want three guys on me. Second thing, I wanted him to understand that you're you're not frightening me at all. And so I used my tone and my voice and I said, why don't we take this outside just like that? And then the other guy that I'm talking to steps back and almost with big eyes, like, Oh my goodness. Now he's got no problem with me, but his leader has has come up and created a bit of a confrontation because I did disrespect it. No doubt about it. My look to him was disrespectful and it came from a place of being annoyed that he was number ear hustling us. And number two, I wasn't talking to him. I was having a conversation with a guy who asked me a question and I thought it was inappropriate. I thought it was disrespectful. So anyway, that, that, that's, that's at least my rationale, right? But I have forgotten where I am. I'm in a federal facility with guys who deserve and demand respect. And I have forgotten that, okay? Just for a moment, I have forgotten this. So I'm leading the way, we head out the visitation doors, which is where our outspoken meeting is. We take a left, we head back into the yard, which is, and I head over to a corner and I flip around and I say this, and I can't use his name. I want to use his name. I said, I'm gonna say John, it's not John. I said, John, I need you to understand. I have zero interest in disrespecting you in any way. I said, as a matter of fact, I have great respect for you. What you're doing on this team, the Osmolten team, what you're doing for the other men, you're obviously a leader among them, and I have tremendous respect for you. And I watched his shoulders relax, and so I decide, literally, to put my hands on him. Now, by the way, this is an aggressive move on my part, but I felt it would do two things. number one, it would show him some, some intimacy, like like my concern for him, but it would also show him some strength from me. And I'm trying to do both here. So I put my hands on, and I'm a little taller than him. So I put my hands on both shoulders and like forcing his eyes into my eyes. Like put my hands on his shoulders. He then makes, of course, eye contact to determine if there's a risk here. I put my hands on both shoulders. And I said, I really respect you. And I use that word again. His shoulders are relaxed. His hands are not clenched anymore. And he extends his hand like a, not like a white guy handshake, but kind of like a, a brotherhood handshake. And he says, you got no problem with me. You got no problem with me. I said, listen, I don't want a problem with you. I said, I am new to this thing. I, I I shouldn't even probably be even commenting. I'm just trying to help this team. He said, I know where you're coming from, man. I know what you're trying to do here. And and we need to help. And, uh, I just, felt, I just felt like that look you gave me, you, you know, I just felt disrespected. I said, that's a mistake on my part, and, uh, and I am totally apologetic and sorry for that. I should not have done that, and uh, it's my fault. I said, I, I felt like, you know how it feels to be ear hustled, I felt like you were ear hustling the conversation, and I know better, I know that's not your way. And so he appreciated that the explanation and that was truly what was going on there. But anyway, that was a close one. That was as close. I think it was as close as I felt to going to blows with somebody in there. And this guy probably would've got the best of me. I don't doubt that. And, and once his crew figured it out, they'd have been on top of me. Now I will, I will tell you this, each one of these incidents, and they're rare, but when they occur, I go to Greg, and I explain to Greg every word spoken. It's important that my rep understand that when when I've had words with another race, or even within somebody within my race, I need him to understand it verbatim, so that in case it it comes to him from their rep, it it's clear what went down, and he already knows about it, it's not a surprise. The last thing anybody wants to know in there is that they've got somebody that they're responsible for that's out here causing trouble inside the facility. And so I went to Greg and we walked a few labs. I explained it to him and, it, and he, he said, I appreciate the way you handled that, I, I, I like it. He says, those guys shouldn't be you know, effing with you. And uh, I said, look, they were not effing with me. Uh, this was a mistake I made. He deserved more respect than I gave him, and my eyes disrespected him. I know it. I know know the look I gave him, and my eyes disrespected him, and uh, it won't happen again. This is Inside Out with James Catledge, my life inside a federal prison.